This is Thriving in Business and Life. I'm Christopher Harding. And I'm Will Wilkinson. Welcome back to the program. Hey, Will. Today we are going to be talking about the topic of inclusion. I can't wait to see what's included. <laughs> right. Reminds right. me of that joke. Batteries for sale. Batteries not included. <laughs> it's a big topic, and especially in your work with, uh, with organizations all over the world, inclusion, I think particularly with the different genders, the different um, millennials, baby boomers, it's a lot to pull together to include everyone. Well, and when you think about inclusion, I mean, really what we're talking about is including someone other than myself. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, and you know, if you which, start, which to, tends to be the gold standard, right? <laughs> Sometimes I'm, I'm normal. <laughs> Everyone else is another. I read that that's actually mo- more the uh, the reason for problems, including others, is not so much that we judge them as different, but that we consider ourselves normal. And anybody other than that, we view as being um, different, usually in a way that's not good. Exactly. So they, they should be more like me, and then things would be better. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, it, it, when when you think about inclusion, I mean, you brought up some of the, the classic uh, ones where there's been challenges historically, right? Yeah. With with gender, with ethnic, ethnicity, and race, and now more, I think, with uh, generational differences, yeah. uh, Generation X and Y, working their way into what was for a long time, largely dominated by uh, baby boomers. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you think about inclusion, uh, sometimes the real question, the genuine question that comes up when we're talking about it in an organization is, well, why? Why, why would I do that? It's, yeah. it's, it creates more of a challenge. And so... Well, it does, especially for the hard-charging A-type uh, executive who's more interested in getting things done, just checking it off a list. It's going to slow down the process. Yeah, it can. It can until we learn how to become more agile and more flexible and adaptable, um, which comes with time and, and, and practice. And the good news is once we learn how to do that in regard to including differences, we become more flexible in general. We become more adaptable as a person and as a team. But one of the one of the biggest characteristics, and there have been a lot of studies that, that demonstrate the viability of, of what I'm about to share, and that is that when we get good at inclusion, we actually enhance or increase the intelligence of the group. Well, that's one of those things that the, the minute you hear it and take a moment to digest it, it's a self-evident truth. It's so obvious that that would be the case. Sure. You're drawing from more background, more experience, mm-hmm. uh, different points of view. And so the real question becomes, um, are we interested in preserving the status quo? In other words, keeping it normal, right, the way it's been? Or are we interested in adapting and bringing about change? Well, that is the big question, and I think it's linked to the stories we tell and the roles we play inside those stories, well, and, a, and a bigger paradigm shift from the, uh, the Lone Ranger mentality, you could say the great charismatic leader with the vision who enrolls others to follow him versus team play. I was writing the other day, and I found myself in, in our uh, coaching manual, found myself writing, if you want to get something done right, you've got to do it together. Right, yeah, which is a total paradigm shift. Yeah, I, I read that. I went, well, wait a minute. Isn't it usually you've got to do it yourself? 
and I realized I've been writing the new paradigm voice. Yeah, yeah. Well, then, the, the, like you said, if if you think about it, uh, you know, two heads are better than one, as the old saying goes, and so forth. But even if I'm interested in preserving the status quo, which sometimes is is needed and necessary in order to create stability, there are always going to be challenges and twists and turns and problems to solve. And what the research uh, done by MIT, University of Pennsylvania, BYU, UCLA, who did a combined study was that people in a more diverse group uh, solve those types of problems better and actually are able to better predict what's coming around the corner, Mm -hmm. in other words, predict the future, than a group of people who are pretty much the same. In other words, this is a very practical thing. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it really is. And, and so, you know, are there, you could say, humanistic reasons for, for doing inclusion? Sure, there, there are. And for some well, people, it, it's, that's a totally good consideration, ethical, spiritual, humanistic, whatever you want to call it. Well, just thinking of myself, I, I recall the experience of preferring the comfort of what I knew in a group making decisions together, to venturing into unknown territory where who knows what might erupt. If you're in charge of something and you've got a timeline and there's money involved and other people are depending on an outcome, there is a strong uh, predisposition, I'd say, to going the proven route, even though it may not be getting the results it used to. Well, Jordan Peterson talks about it in his uh, recent popular book. He, he talks about it, you know, he kind of refers to it almost as a certainty bias. Uh-huh. That if Good I, term. If I, I, I kind of made that up based on what he said. But, well, I uh, like it. But maybe, maybe, maybe he says it somewhere else in the book <laughs> I haven't gotten to yet. But, but what, uh, what he's talking about is that evolutionarily, because of the predictability and safety of, of you know, something that's repeatable and certain, mm-hmm. we prefer certainty. Yeah. And that, it, that there is a, a risk in difference because mm-hmm. difference initially feels chaotic. Right, and there's a, a hesitancy to claim ownership for an innovation just in case it goes poorly. Of course, if it goes well, we'd love to take the credit. (laughs) But yeah, I think everybody listening can remember times when there was awareness of something that wasn't working, that could have changed, where we kept silent because we didn't want to be the one to rock the boat and disturb something. It wasn't working great, but the wheels hadn't fallen off yet. We could see the nuts were loose. Were we (laughs) going to be the ones to say anything about that or not? That's a challenging moment. Yeah, the bystander effect that's sometimes referred to as. And, you know, if if you think about it, part of creating a culture where inclusion works is and this is a leader or manager's role is to create an environment where it's safe to speak up now granted there are ways to speak up that are more effective than others but but the whole idea is is that if you bring up um, something that challenges the status quo you're you're acknowledged you could say and rewarded for thinking outside the box or for thinking of something new Um, Well, you know, I think this comes down to uh, some of what we spoke about in our resources uh, module in the chapter in the book about the uh, combination of resident resources, things that we can see or discover, and emergent resources, 
which is where the genius of a group emerges through a field that encourages that. Right. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. It's it's the the things that might be off my radar because they're not within my field of vision, uh, you know, literally or figuratively, can come into view because somebody else is standing seeing it from a, a different perspective. Well, and what we're talking about is a, a culture in an organization that doesn't just tolerate that, but that actively encourages it. Right, right. That's a, that's a great point. Well, you know, when you, when you think about the process of inclusion, uh, a lot of times it's, it's helpful just to observe, you know, who are my go-to people? Mm -hmm. Who are the people that I tend to call upon regularly? And that's great. They, they probably have served our team or our process well. But then to really start to notice who am I not involving uh, who would really benefit from being involved in the process? Uh, who could we bring into the mix who might really, uh, you know, help us see this more clearly? And we offer a, a simple device in, in the book and the course for that called the uh, Inclusion Continuum. Why don't you describe what that is, how that works? Yeah, if you just think of a horizontal line and, and on the left-hand side, you could say would be sameness, mm -hmm. right? People who are like me. And on the far end would it be people who are very different than me. And so if, if I'm tending to, you know, draw upon the people who think and see the world similarly to me a lot... What I want to start to do is reach out across that continuum and begin to include people who who are who do have a different vantage point. Uh, for example, maybe it's because they're in a different place in the organization or in the community. Uh, maybe they see things from a different vantage point. If I'm a parent, it might be asking how this is going to impact my kids. And if you think about the, the lean process, kind of what the, the idea there is, is to, in order to utilize that in inclusion continuum, you'd take an inclusion inventory and you'd say, right. you know, who else is going to either have to implement, or I guess you could start off with design, design, implement, and uh, be impacted by the decision we're going to make. Well, we have a history of being pretty blind, you could say willfully blind, <laughs> yeah. and ignoring the stakeholders involved in something where decisions are being made that they have no input on. Uh, I remember hearing, I didn't see this, but hearing of a program on Oprah discussing childbirth, and a woman stood up in the audience and asked how many of the panelists had given birth, and all the panelists were men. <laughs> in that moment, I think the blinders came off because here were these experts making recommendations. The stakeholders were clearly women, and there were no women on the stage. Yeah, that's a, that's a common one. You, think, you realize, for example, Nissan did something kind of radical when they were acquired by uh, a French company, uh, Renault. Uh, basically acquired them and had done some research to realize that I think it was as high as 80% of the car buying decisions were either made by women or strongly influenced by women. And they looked at the design teams of Nissan <laughs> right. who had almost no women. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. So they, they set a target to basically create equity between men and women designers, which just was going to take them some time. They uh -huh. had to really you know, make sure they're getting qualified people. But the whole idea is 
why is it that somebody's designing a product who isn't the one who actually either utilizes it or makes the decision to buy it? Exactly. Great question. And just going back to the inclusion inventory for a moment, it's a very powerful tool. Uh, and I know you've used this in organizations for years, and that you also recommend there may be times when it's helpful to include somebody who knows nothing about the topic. Yeah, we could go to two ends of the extreme there. Somebody who knows nothing uh, because they're going to be willing to ask the uh, seemingly stupid question yeah, right. right? that actually becomes very enlightening. <laughs> Uh, in many cases, and also to ask the person who I know will disagree with me because I need to understand why they disagree, what it is, is that they're concerned about, and what's that other point of view mm -hmm. that I should take into account. Well, I'd be interested to dive deeper into the mechanics of implementing more inclusion because you've led groups in this, and what's the typical kind of pushback that you get as you begin to make a shift in an organization? The number one answer, it's a quick go-to, that if you want to resist, you go, we don't have time. Uh-huh, right. We don't have time for this. Right. Uh, now, the, the truth of the matter is, is up front, a more diverse group might take a little longer to come to an effective answer because mm -hmm. you're dealing with more points of view. Yeah. What what organizations started to work with, I worked with uh, several uh, biotherapeutic companies that manufacture um, pharmaceuticals for cancer and kidneys and a variety of other things. And what they learned was that if they took the upfront time in some of their manufacturing processes and were more inclusive, yes, it did take more time up front, but the savings they gained downstream from having done it right the first time was just exponentially better uh, because they weren't having to redo things. They weren't right. having to reconfigure. Well, this is kind of an echo of that Japanese formula, going slow to go fast. Right. And, and uh, when I had a chance to work with Toyota for uh, a handful of years, they, you know, they really kind of came up with what we now call lean. And inclusion was an inherent, really deeply held part of their whole process. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, they learned that that's what made it work. As a matter of fact, they would send the cars in their prototype form home with the families of people in the organization to get feedback from the actual people who were going to be either driving and or a passenger in those vehicles. So, Well, this is often the disconnect between the engineers and the users because the engineers can be excited about features. Look right. what this can do. Well, maybe the consumer is excited about that. Maybe not. You'd find out by asking the consumer. Right. Yeah. Letting letting the <laughs> prototype actually go out and get some field right. testing. I was talking with a just really brilliant woman uh, today. She happens to be in the design and innovation department of a major manufacturer. And she was walking me through the design process that she and her team use. And it was really great. It was a very inclusive process, you know, that they explore it from the vantage point of, of, the, of the engineers, certainly, but also from those who are going to have to manufacture it and from the consumer. Yeah. And they do a lot of that exploration before they ever get into prototyping something. Mm. And once they prototype it, then it rolls back out to that mm. same group mm. of people to look at it again. So they've learned that this process of inclusion, again, it, 
there's some extra steps in there for them. But what they found is that when they do that, by the time they actually roll a product out to the public, it's been thoroughly vetted. Well, you know, I have to admit, as I was hearing you describe their process, which sounds very thorough, I was recalling the comment you made earlier, the number one pushback, we don't have time for that. This sounds like it does take a lot more time. It, it takes more time, so part of, part of what uh, needs to be planned for, if you're going, especially if you're doing something you know, systematically uh, throughout a whole system, is you really have to think about how do you streamline that process so that it's effective. And one way is, and here's the other pushback, what do you want me to ask everybody? Yeah. No, right. no, we do. we're not suggesting that. We're saying make sure you pick a representative sample of mm-hmm. people across the mm-hmm. continuum. Uh, you know, if you're looking to get buy-in from a group, you might choose people who have influence within that group, and, and so that they're able to bring you that group's point of view. Mm-hmm. And they're also able to sell it back to the group because they were involved. And that's the other benefit of, of inclusion is it generates much more naturally a sense of, of ownership and buy-in. Well, we're talking about inclusion so far in terms of people and including a more diverse range of people. Let's talk about inclusion relative to the kind of input that comes because we can be surrounded by yes men and women who everything that's suggested, they'll go, that's a great idea. This is going to work. And then the devil's advocate type can be uh, disenfranchised. Oh, I'm a little worried about this part right here. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. So let's talk about including the kind of feedback that can be ignored in what I call that state of being blinded by the light of our own brilliance. <laughs> group think, as group they call think it. too as well. Yeah, so yeah. say a bit more about that. Well that that is at the heart of inclusion. And so regardless of the reason why somebody has a different point of view, the question is, am I willing to actually hear it out? Mm-hmm. And so rather than just shutting it down, you know, being able to, you know, understand, well, say more about that. What's your concern? What, you know, how do you see this? And taking the, the time to listen and finding the right forum for that conversation. Yes. Well, I was thinking of that, well. too. I know uh, Edward de Bono, I think, pioneered the six thinking hats where you allocated certain periods of time to certain kinds of feedback, creative thinking, negative comments, etc., etc. Do you find that kind of segmentation is useful? Uh, at times, yeah, especially during brainstorming yeah, processes. Yeah. We talked about that actually last in our last program about right. assessment, right? Yeah. And so I think that that can be helpful. The, the other thing is, is just assuming, and we talk about this a lot, we call it leveraging the genius of inclusion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason we do that is the idea is that we are l- looking through the lens to see the genius in other people's comments mm-hmm. and ideas. Mm-hmm. If I'm, if that's the lens I'm wearing, I'm, I'm intentionally inserting, you could say, a, a bias filter, mm-hmm. a, a bias for seeing the, the intelligence in them. I'm going to have a far better chance of seeing the value something somebody offers when it's different than mine than if I'm looking through the lens of defensiveness. Well, and, and also that lens can be kind of a mission-driven way of seeing. Right, right. Uh, I know uh, you and I just recently reviewed that old Harvard study, I think it was 1999, where you have people counting the passes made by the basketball players in white. Oh, right, right. And you're so busy, this is the direction you get, so you're seeing through this lens how many passes are these guys making. 
Well, yes, they're making passes, but right in the middle of their activity, a person in a gorilla suit comes into the middle of the scene, waves at the camera, walks off. Nobody sees the gorilla. Right. They can't include the gorilla who's physically there because they're so focused through their lens of getting a particular task done. I'm sure that happens in the in corporate life. Oh, definitely. I mean, that is kind of the uh, quintessential example of brain blindness, yeah. right? So, yeah, that's something we have to overcome if we're going to be inclusive. You know, but the, the other thing, too, is I was sitting in a meeting the other day, and it was really interesting to notice. It was a very diverse group. They'd done a great job of doing the inclusion inventory and mm -hmm. inviting people into the room mm -hmm. who were representative of different levels, different areas within the organization, and so forth. But what began to happen is the people who had more formal or recognized power started to do simple little things to basically exclude the people mm -hmm. who weren't at their same level as they saw it. And they probably weren't consciously aware of that. No, I don't believe they were. Uh -huh. um, or if they were, barely so. Uh -huh. And some of those people, I just watched their body language and reaction as they were shut down yeah. or cut off. Yeah. And, uh, you know... It's some work that's going to have to be done by this group to be so, able so, to be so successful. Now, you, you were there, so what would you say was driving that uh, beginning of exclusivity? Well, I think uh, agenda, wanting uh -huh. to make sure that one's own agenda okay. is, is the one that wins. Okay. Uh, and part of what we started talking about is that in order for an agenda to truly win in a sustainable way, you have to have the cooperation and buy-in of, of, right. of the organization. And they've had some challenges with that. And what was really, uh, it, was, it was really kind of emotionally heart-tugging was mm. to literally watch how kind of wounded some people were by just small comments like, yeah. well, you people, or... Uh, you know, things things like that. And, you know, somebody said that really, you know, they spoke up, I mean, much to their credit, and said that really um, bothers me when you refer to me and who you consider to be like me as you people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think inclusion in the very beginning stages, especially if we haven't really become practiced at it, we have to be ready for bumps and bruises along the way and hopefully the willingness to facilitate ourselves or get some help doing that so that we learn how to work our way through some of those natural challenges that are going to happen when differences collide. I think it's it's helpful to remember that we're all human. That's a good place to start. <laughs> we all had parents who did their best. However, we grew up with wounds of exclusion. Simple thing like being picked last for the baseball team. That can sit with a person for 20 years. I've had clients tell me that they were wounded you know, for a long time by being excluded from simple things like that. So regardless of you know how expensive our suit is, and how many awards we've won, inside all of us is a human who comes complete with wounds and fragile areas. And if we just remember that, that, that it's important to care for each other, then I think we'll be more vigilant to, you know, probably inadvertently excluding people at times or maybe consciously to move an agenda along. Because you, you know this, 
um, from your work, I know it uh, from mine, the greatest asset in any organization are the people working together. Yeah. The teamwork. And yeah, you may get the project through on time, but what has it done to the relationships and the fabric of trust between us? It's such an important consideration. Well, and that's one of the huge benefits of inclusion done well, is yeah. that it creates that yeah. rapport, that trust, that sense of we're in it together. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as you were saying that, too, what, what really uh, you know, came to my mind was that the sense that, you know, if, if we're, you know, convinced that we want that exponential benefit of intelligence that comes from leveraging the power of a group and being inclusive, part of that means that I'm, I'm really going to have to start to become more conscious of my own unconscious biases mm -hmm. because those filters are the ones that will have me cut people off mm -hmm. or exclude people or you know, downplay their comments. Uh, and, you know, being, we've talked about this before, having a, a culture where there can be a bias filter where somebody goes, hey, wait yeah. a minute. Yeah. You know, this person said something and it kind of got downplayed or they got cut off. Let, let's stop for a minute. Let's hear from them. Those become, you know, key elements that a group can start to institute mm -hmm. when they really think that it's worthwhile to make the investment of ensuring that everybody there is is being recognized, valued, and respected. And again, I believe that when we treat people like human beings, you know, one of the really interesting benefits is they show up yeah. and perform better. Yeah. Now they will live up to expectations. Right. Or down. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. It works both ways. Well, I think it's at least interesting to consider the, the weight of history you know, we live in a democracy and a lot of um, experience of degrees of equality. But historically, there were kings and queens and lords and ladies and servants and peasants. I'm just watching The Tudors right now on Netflix, also The Crown. And it's just amazing to see how people's status determines how they're treated. A servant is treated different than a nobleman. Well, and so I that, think, that's where we're coming from. Yeah, when you when you think about Downton Abbey, for example, yeah. which did such a great job of demonstrating those different structures within a household, is that not only were those biases and, and levels of treatment reinforced by the upper class or royalty, but the the downstairs, for example, uh, reinforced them every bit as strongly, sometimes more so had stronger biases about themselves and those in their same class as others. And we can either hold each other down or lift each other up. Mm -hmm. And inclusion, uh, ultimately, and I, I say this because I, I have such a uh, admiration for, for people and their brilliance and their hearts and their minds, is I love the idea of inclusion because I believe it brings out the best mm -hmm. in everybody. Well, I think it's it was obviously true, and we've experienced that both sides of the coin. We're tribal in nature. We will group together in our little cliques. We'll do that. But I think a leader is able to leverage the power of each individual without and the uniqueness without demanding that they integrate into a larger tribe and abandon their own. I think it's a very delicate balance. Well, let, let's walk through that real quickly. So if you think about it, um, there's three ways to do inclusion. One, uh, or to deal with differences, you could say. Uh, 
One is that we do assimilation. If you're yep. going to be with us, you've got to leave yep. who you are behind yep. and be like us. The second one is pluralism. You see this a lot in European nations. Um, we'll be us and you be you, and we'll work together when it's convenient, but you know that's it. Mm -hmm. What inclusion really is, is bring your full self into mm -hmm. the mix. I'll bring my full self into the mix. We won't leave part of us behind, and we'll figure out how to make the most of the full selves that we bring. Well, it strikes me that there's a corollary there with the ancient art of alchemy. With right, alchemy, right. They, they brought diverse elements together and blended them, and then the transformation occurred. They didn't try to make the elements like each other before they combined them. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, analogy. I like that. Well, so, so the hope is that we can um, continue to be aware of how to create that alchemy within our own family, our own organizations or community, so that we do bring out the best in each other. And maybe a good place to leave this conversation is to also turn our attention on ourselves. Yes. What are we including and excluding in ourselves? I think that's a, another good place to start. Boy, that's a whole other conversation. Well, maybe we'll tune into that next week. <laughs> well, you can reach us at thrivinginbusinessandlife at gmail.com. I'm Christopher Harding. I'm Will Wilkinson. Thanks so much for joining us. Talk to you again next week.